As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'll come back to the dressing room, obviously. Nice round of applause. And then Mickey Stewart, my manager, picked me out and he, he said, well done. He said, but he said, what are you doing getting out? You're listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast with me, Will Rowe. These are the stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them. My guest on this week's show really needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. Uh, Making his test debut in 1975 and enjoying an England career spanning 20 years, scoring 8,900 runs along the way in 118 test matches, including 20 centuries, six of which were at Lord's. He is quite simply a legend of the game. It's Graham Gooch. Welcome, Graham. Yes, nice to speak to you. How are you doing today? Very good. Uh, always good to talk cricket and especially about the most famous and best cricket ground in the world. Indeed, we'll be discussing those two Lords Hundreds, uh, your maiden test century of 123, which was against the West Indies in 1980, and then, of course, that record-breaking 3-3-3 against India in 1990, which still stands as the highest score at the ground. Uh, but first, we're here in Chelmsford today. With this, uh, this podcast we're actually recording in the, uh, in the museum at Essex uh, County Cricket Club. It's, uh, it's, it's quite nice to be here. Yeah, not quite the same as the Lord's M- Museum. <laughs> uh, not so many trophies and some uh, trinkets in there as here, but we've had a successful period yeah. in Essex's history, and I, and I feel very honoured and fortunate to be a part of that in as much as when I started playing for Essex I remember um, people always saying that the club had never won anything in their whole 103 years history Yeah, and um, so particularly special for all the players who played in the game when we won our first trophy in 1979 at Lords in the yeah. Benton Hedges Cup against Surrey Born in 1953 in Whips Cross, part of the London borough of Leighton, not far from where we're recording, Graham Gooch is in many ways a true East Ender. His father Alf was a carpenter and mother Rose spent time in a wire-making factory before and after the Second World War. In the first part of the podcast, we chat about Graham's childhood. 
my abiding memories, my, my dad was a massive West Ham supporter. Yeah. Although we lived in Leytonstone, which was closer to Leighton Orient's ground, um, I was taken to uh, Upton Park from when I can remember. And he made a, because he was a bit of a carpenter, he, he made a box for me to stand on in the corner of the South Bank. So I was very, very fortunate watching sport at Upton Park and the emergence of Bobby Moore, probably my sporting hero. Um, Jeff Hurst and Martin Peters as well, well well as many other fantastic players and of course in the early 60s West Ham won the FA Cup and the European Cup Winners Cup and then obviously England won the World Cup in 66 so that's a big memory and then also in the summertime my dad played for a local club East Ham Corinthians yep. who played at two grounds basically Plastic Park uh, on a Saturday which is near West Ham's football ground and a place called the Old Blues Rugby Football Ground at Fairlop uh, Barking side in Essex and coincidentally that's where in those days in the early 60s Essex used to have their pre-season nets right. on that ground um, so my Sundays dad used to play on Sundays and we used to go every Sunday to that ground or some away grounds obviously mum used to take the picnic with my sister and I had a bat in my hand since I can remember and they used to pester all the other players when I was a bit older to throw me the ball on the field so I knew nothing different. So I've absolutely grown up with cricket from when I was born. Your childhood is described as a very working class one. How did that forge you, do you think, as a, as a cricketer? Um, yeah, Dad used to work in, a, in, in um, a place which made kitchens originally, Wren Kitchens. I think they're still in business. I think you, see, you hear them advertised now. And they used to also make, uh, in, a, in a company called Dunsters, I think, which made like television cabinets because in those days, in the early late fifties, early sixties, TVs were encased in wooden cabinets. Yeah, and that's what I've he, seen the photos. He, he used to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not quite like they are now. Um, so yeah, he used to go to work, and, and of course that that sort of uh, discipline was uh, passed on to me because when I started to play. Uh, representative cricket for London schools and Essex schools 1969 first went on a London schools tour to East Africa with John Embry and I, I made my second team debut for Essex when I was 15 um, batted number 11 kept wicket <laughs> at Northampton and um, did he make any runs I, I don't think I even batted actually. I was a bit, I was a bit annoyed. I thought I should be number ten actually, <laughs> be, be, before a clubby bowler who was opening the bowling. Because I mean, most of the second team for Essex in those days were club players. Yeah, good club players. There was a few professionals, but mainly club players. Um, and then Essex approached me. You know, they were keen for me to, you know, maybe go on the staff and, and become a professional. But he insisted that I um, undertook a four-year apprenticeship in engineering. I went to work like most other people went to work every day yeah. from 8 till 5 and having a proper job was a good grounding for me because I think any any player, male or female, who plays professional sport, it's not a job, it's a dream. Yeah. So when you've had a proper job and you go that, you know you know how you lucky, lucky you are to be able to attempt to play professional sport and hopefully play it well. Well, the dream became his job as Graham Shone, rising through the ranks to make his England debut in 1975, aged just 21. Surprisingly, though, it wasn't until five years and 18 test matches later that he'd score a test century. 
but it did come at Lords against one of the most fearsome bowling attacks of all time. On that day in 1980, the West Indies had Michael Holding, Joel Garner, Andy Roberts and Colin Croft steaming in. Let's push the little single. Well, Gooch is there now. 99 out of 138. He won't play much better than this. chat to himself there to concentrate no ball call and the hundred for Graham Gooch and it could hardly happen to a nicer fellow really top class performance he's in for only 188 minutes for that century, 145 balls he faced, 6 and 13 fours. His first test match century, and although he's not given to a great deal of uh, smiling on the field, inwardly he will be thrilled and completely delighted. It's everyone's aim when they go to the wicket as a run scorer is to make three figures. That is your aim. Obviously, if you get to that stage, you want to go on. I had a great mentor at the time. Um, Kenny Barrington was the, shall we say, the England assistant manager. He, he was a selector. He wasn't an official coach. He didn't have an official coach then. The captain ran the side. But he was a, a wise man and, and a great man. And he, he was a great father figure to people like myself, David Gower, Mike Gatting, John Embry, Ian Botham, all those players of that era who were just coming into the team. And he always used to say, you know, booking for bed and breakfast, if you get 100, go on and get 150 because you might be out for low score the next match and the next match. So he, he was a great influence on me. And of course, all, all through my career, um, the Essex past captain, selector, TC. The uh, chairman Doug Insull, who sadly passed away last year, was a, obviously the president, past president of the MCC. Yeah. He was, I, I would say, my cricketing guardian all the way through my career. He was manager of the tour in '78 yeah. Australia, and he was a great guiding light for me. So uh, it's particularly nice to score runs at Lords, and you know you, you've got to be inspired when you play against the best, and uh, that's what every player should be. Your demeanour on the field, though, I watched the archive tapes of it, and when you acknowledge your century, you look like you've scored a sort of 50 for a schoolboys game. I mean, you're, there's no smile, there's just raise the bat and just carry on with the job. Is that sort of, um, was that your philosophy? Just keep going, uh, as you're saying? Not, not in those days. I mean, I, I was way, way short of, uh, of being where I needed to be. Yeah. as a player in those days I was evolving all the time and when people speak to me about my career you know, I say you evolve yourself all the way through and I you know it's well documented I had the best part of my career right at the end yeah uh, when I evolved a lot more learned a lot more about myself how to carry myself how to behave how to uh, get the best out of myself all those things came a bit late for me I wish it would have come came a lot earlier I wish I'd have realized a lot earlier um it wasn't by design to look a bit miserable and grumpy, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I was... Uh, different characters, you know, act different ways. And I'm a bit of a believer. You bat a little bit about 
like your character. Yeah. Like if you're an uh, extravagant sort of character, an extrovert sort of character, you play a little bit like that. If you're a little bit introvert, you play a little bit like that. And um, I, I, I think, um, you know, as I went on, I tried to keep level-headed. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, if I was out for naught or scored 150 in the dressing room, there wouldn't be a lot of difference yeah. in my manner, if you see what I mean. Whereas a lot of players would react badly if they got a bad decision and they would let off steam, you know, and, and, and I'm not one for that. You know, I, I just sort of try and keep the same sort of even keel all the way through. But, you know, you just want to go on and make the contribution that helps your team win the match. Because you do yourself a slight disservice there. You're actually one of the most successful... Well, you were the most successful batsman against the Windies in the 80s. You scored 1,589 runs against them, an average of 41 with four centuries. No one else in world cricket had those records. And that was against that attack of Holding, Roberts, Garner, Croft and Marshall. Mm. Um, what was it, do you think, that made you so successful against them? I, I don't know. I, mean, I You know, I... I evolved my game as as time went on um a big change for me was opening the batting in 1978 i played my first two tests including one at lords in 1975 the second one scored six i think the first innings 30 30 odd in the second innings uh, was dropped tony Gregg became captain of england and i don't think he fancied me as a player as a young player then so i lost my place which was fair enough i wasn't successful in the two games then came a big change for me in 78, opening the batting. Yeah. Keith Fletcher, the Essex captain, asked me to open the batting. Went to Australia on tour. Um, had a very average tour, although we won 5-1 on that tour. And then another big change for me, seeing video replays, which were just hitting the scene then. This, that was the modern technology then, you know, yeah. um, video recorders. You know, otherwise you never re- really used to see much of yourself on TV unless you could watch the sort of highlights on BBC. Um, that was a big change for me because I changed my style with the upright stance. You know, the famous is, Graham Gooch yeah, stance. Isn't well, it, standing that, that, up. and that made a big difference to me yeah. in terms of of how I played and hitting the ball straighter and driving the ball down the ground. And I think that style. Um, I mean, I don't think you could ever say suited the fast bowlers, but. It sort of worked against the fast bowlers. My style coped with that sort of bowling better than some other people. And maybe it didn't cope quite so well with the sort of medium pace type swing type bowling. Um, and I always I always sort of um, was inspired by playing against the West Indies. You know, they, they, they were on to you. They, were, they weren't aggressive particularly. They, they, they bowled a certain length. You know, your Garners, your Crofts and your Holdings all bowled sort of short of a length, you know. Roberts pitched the ball up more. Malcolm Marshall certainly pitched the ball up a little bit more. Um, I mean, it wasn't all bumpers, but uh, yeah. you know, it, it was. You had to realise you had you could be hit a few times. You, as, as we used to say in the game, they chip a few bits off of you. Yeah, you know, but you had to just keep going, and um, it, it was tough, but it was enjoyable. And of course, if you want to be the best, you have to beat the best. And yeah. you have to you have to be successful against the best, and they were by by far the best side. Some would say the best side ever, and they were tough to beat. One thing that you've become sort of famous for, and maybe a bit ahead of the curve, was your fitness regime. As a player, you used to play squash during matches, go for a run. You'd be batting, score a hundred, and then come off and go on the squash courts. Um, I mean, why did you do that? Um, well, I. I think initially, 
Uh, going back to, you mentioned about 75, the debut. Yes. And, and playing the other test at Lords. Okay, in that little period, I was at the England team till 78. Uh, it sort of coincided with Keith Fletcher asking me to open the batting. I realised that my only fitness really before them was to play other sport, you know training in in terms of running doing weights all the sort of things you know were, were sort of not alien but not not the norm and I realized when I opened the batting my concentration needs to be better my fitness needs to be better my durability needs to be better so how am I going to do that so as well as playing a, a bit of football I sort of started the training regime and I enjoyed it and I felt better so still then and going probably for the next decade the individual was left really to look after himself. There was no organised fitness trainer on a regular basis or any any programmes or anything like that. And, and, I, and I worked out very quickly that running was something you could do very easily. And if you're out early, you could go running. Like I used to go up to Primrose Hill and run <laughs> up and down there. You know, well, you sneak out the ground. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, if I was out early as an opener, you know, and put some training in and... At the end, what is it about? Did you do that in test matches? Graham? Yeah, occasionally. Yeah, yeah. I still the other week I was there, Primrose, because we we're doing the coast to coast walk, right, for for the PCA Benevolent Fund okay. and my scholarship in September. So I did. So we we're doing seventeen miles on Monday walking. But we when I was at Lords the other day, I went to Primrose Hill and went up and down ten times, right round the circle. Yeah, it's up the hill. Well, there you have it, Graham Gooch running up and down Primrose Hill. It's something that you probably wouldn't see today in a test match. Now it's 1990, Graham is captain of England and embarks on what's been dubbed Gooch's Golden Summer, the highlight being that famous 3-3-3 against India at Lords. But before that, we chat about the previous Ashes Summer, when Graham came unstuck against a certain Australian bowler. Oh, yes, indeed. Gooch has gone over W and all of them has done him again. That field formation and the swinging ball from Alderman, there's no great pace about it, but it has done for Gooch throughout this series. They're playing across the pad. Yes, the first two ones outside of stump swing, and this time he got onto the line that he likes to bowl, round about the leg and middle. And just straightening up fractionally, making it to virtually a straight ball at the finish. So once again, Terry Alderman has got Graham Gooch out. He's certainly put a real thorn in Gooch's side throughout the series. The previous summer, um, Terry Alderman really, you know, kind of had the wood on you, he got you LBW. Yeah. There's one story that I just wanted to fact check, because if it is true, I love this story. Did you change your answer phone message to say, I'm out? Probably LBW to Terry Alderman. That's incorrect. My answer message <laughs> does. My answer message does say, "Sorry, I'm afraid our team's all out," and it still says that. Right. Okay. Not quite to the point. Yeah. I'm out LBW to Terry Alderman, but I might change it. I'll change it to that. That's quite a good one, actually. I mean, I always when I see Terry, we always chat, and I always thank Terry. Okay, because. Apart from wearing out about three pair of pads when I played against him, yeah. um, he exposed the technical flaw that I was experiencing in that little period of my career. Yes. And because of that, he helped me straighten that out, if you see what I mean. Yeah. That really exposed 
um, what I was doing wrong. So I had to reassess, as I say, like every player needs to do this, I had to reassess after that. And then when I came back in 89, after that tour, because I captained England, went to India with the Nehru Cup and speaking to Geoffrey, and I straightened that out, it, literally, and it's not meant to be a pun, I, I straightened that out, so I was playing a lot straighter, moving better, getting in a better position, because my game fell into disrepair, and of course I had the best period of my career after that. Captain in England was a great catalyst for me to spur myself for the last phase of my career. Yeah. I felt responsible, I felt I had to lead from the front, I felt that the runs I needed to get would set the tone for the matches and it inspired me so whenever people ask me about you know captaincy can be a burden on a player and I, I, I'm not of that school you were the opposite absolutely lead from the front sort well, of mentality it, it inspires yeah. you yeah, yeah it inspired me I mean I never really desperately sought the England captaincy but when it came my way I enjoyed it and it had a, a, a fantastic effect on, on my cricket and um, it helped me look at myself, look at the future and what, it, what I wanted to achieve uh, both for the team and, and for myself for the last phase of my career because I was in my mid-30s then. And the fitness, all the years of fitness, the, the decade of fitness before was standing me in good stead into my late 30s, you know, and I was a more rounded person and player and, um, you know, it, it all fell into place sort of thing in a way before the the match at Lords um, I'd had a good test in the last test against New Zealand at Edgbaston where I got 150 I think and then, and then of course uh, in those days on the Tuesday before the test at Lords I think I scored 170 odd against Lancashire at Colchester so I was seeing the ball okay. Yeah, you were in some good form. <laughs> I chatted to um, John Stevenson, an old uh, teammate of yours. Mm. He said there was a game in the lead-up um, to that Lord's Test. I think it was probably the one before the Lancashire match. You were playing New Zealand here at Chelmsford. Yes. And um, you were batting with John, uh, Stan, as he's affectionately mm. known. And um, he said that you, you said to him in the middle, he, um, he said, Stan, I'm bored. I think I'll leave the field. Um, this is the story as John tells it, and he convinced you to stay on because he said, Graham, everyone's come to watch you bat. <laughs> I mean, you you were in such a good vein of form that you were almost bored out there. I mean, is it true? Uh, I don't know, mate. I, 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 I think I might have gone in down the order. I, I don't remember. I, I do remember scoring 100, yeah. yeah. I mean, I look, when you're in good form, you know, you see the ball well, but you just got to stay in the moment, as I say, and, 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 and try and... Um, do your best. I, I, I might have. I, I might have said that. I, I don't. I don't know. So on Thursday, the twenty sixth of July, nineteen ninety, Graham turns up at Lords on the first morning of a Test series against India in fine form. India's captain Mohammad Azruddin won the toss and asks England to bat. At the end of the day, England were 359 for two, with Graham 194 not out. It's something that happens even to this day at Lords. Um, it's always a difficult decision what to do if you win the toss at Lords on the first day. If it's a bright, clear day like it is at Chelmsford today, you probably you definitely bat. If it's slightly overcast and slightly muggy and humid. It's difficult because you know it's going to be a tough first session. The ball will swing around, the ball will move around. 
we tended a lot to bat because at Lords we thought that, and I think it's still similar. Generally, Lords is at its slowest on the first day, so it might move around, but it, it's going to be quite slow. Yeah. As the sun gets on the wicket or the good weather prevails, it dries out a little bit, gets a little bit quicker, goes a little bit uneven sometimes towards the end of the match. So if you can get a good score in the first innings. So it, it's a difficult decision. You know, if it's really overcast and look green, you, you might put a side in. But it, it, it's it's not a straightforward decision on that first day at Lords if the weather's a little bit iffy. Um, you know, he, you know, I couldn't say it was a bad decision. But, you know, you, you've got to get through the first session without losing one, two wickets maximum. Well, you were 350 nine for two at the close of play uh, you went back to your hotel room I presume and you were probably thinking about oh, I just want to make my double ton tomorrow that was, that was going no, through your thoughts I remember and... exactly what I did I went for dinner with Doug Insel okay. that night at Odette's in Primrose Hill well I just arranged beforehand obviously to to have to see him and uh, I, I obviously he's, he's one of my best friends and I said my, my cricketing mentor uh, I was never going to duck out of that and I remember saying to him I, I was really tired after the first day because you know Tuesday we finished we had one day against Lancashire yeah we had one day you know which is rest really because it, it, in those days you know the Wednesday when you used to meet up before a test and everyone had played on a Tuesday I mean you're not you're not doing anything there you're just sort of getting together really yeah you know you're not having any meaningful nets you know you really need a day's rest because you've been playing all the time so chatted to him and um, yeah, and then just picked up the next day. Nice place to play. Absolutely. Can you describe Lords at the time? Because it was uh, for listeners. You know, there's no media centre then. The mounds, mm. uh, the mound stand was a new one. Compton and Edridge stands. If you're looking back towards, uh, well, sort of Primrose Hill, that area, they were a building site yeah. at the time. So, what was it out like? Uh, was it like they're out in the uh, middle? Well, I think it's still it's still nice. I mean, they were they were reconstructing the Compton and Edridge stands. Um, mound stand. I think we've been up three or four years. I think it was there when we played the bicentenary match in '87. Yeah, yeah. And when you went to that 300, what was that feeling like? Because it was the first time in any cricket that you'd um, you'd scored a triple century. I think your, your previous highest was 275 versus Kent at Chelmsford. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> I remember getting out 275 against Kent. Alan Border was playing in that match, and um, I thought I'm not going to do. I'm not going to make that mistake again because only because to get a triple century in any match the opportunity is not there very often because of the length of the game you know to, to go on and bat for that long you know you can do it in a test match but it, you know to, it doesn't happen hardly ever because of the opportunities not there so I was not going to miss off miss out on that so I was a, bit, a little bit nervous going into T was it two was it 299 on T I can't remember I think you got there with a single. Yeah. Uh, famously, just after tea, wasn't it? Just after tea on day two. Yeah. Uh, the BBC actually went to Ascot for the races. <laughs> yes. your, your, uh, your famous moment was missed on the telly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there we go. First ball after tee, bowled by Ravi Shastri. 66 to go. 
454 balls, 598 minutes, two sixes and 44s. Wonderful innings. Ah, oh, look, it, 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 you know, there's some great innings from Robin Smith and Alan Lamb. They both scored you know, hundreds in yeah, that game. And, yeah. and, and we set up a fantastic first inning score. And I don't know if you know the, the, the true story. I mean, after I got 300, I, you know, obviously we were just going to press on and get as many as we could. And I was just not teeing off, but, you know, I, I was pretty fatigued and just tried to press on and get as many as we could quick as we can. And then, of course, when I got out... Um, I'll come back to the dressing room, obviously, nice round of applause, and then Mickey Stewart, my manager, picked me out, and he, he said, well done, he said, but, he said, what are you doing getting out? I said, sorry, Mickey, I said, I've run out of petrol. <laughs> he said, you should never have got out, you should, you should have gone on. He, he, in fact, gave me a ticking off, if you asked him, and he said, you should have gone on and got the record, because the record was 365. Yes. With Gary Sobers, and I'll be honest... I never really thought about that while I was in the middle. Afterwards, I maybe should have thought about that, about going to get the record, because it's not the record, it's just you've got the opportunity. But, uh, yeah, so get 3-3-3 three, three, three and then get a bit of a ticking off from the manager. That is a, <laughs> <laughs> that's a hard taskmaster, if ever, uh, if ever I've heard of one. Um, it was Manjoy Prabhaka that bowled you finally for 3-3-3, three, three, three which is obviously a fantastic effort, um, regardless of what Mickey said at the time. Bowled him. Probably gone inside edge. Success, finally. Gooch goes. 333. Triple Nelson, if you want to be superstitious about it. Uh, what a reception this man's going to get. Leader of his side, the Indian players applauding. Almost glad to be part of history, those men on the balcony certainly are. So is the crowd. Never before will Graham Gooch have left a field to this sort of reception. Uh, but you were actually dropped on 36. Mm. Um, did you have poor old... Um, Kieran Moye. Kieran Moye, yeah, dropped to you off uh, Sanjeev Sharma. Mm. Um Snicked one through. He yeah, came going, up, going he, down the hill, he, he, he moved across sort of towards front, first slip. I mean, he didn't really have to dive, and he shelled it. So they're the bits of, of luck you need, don't you? I mean, um, was it lucky? Yeah, but then again, you, you look at your career in, 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 in the round and everything, there's decisions that go your way, there is luck that goes your way, and it's quite interesting, isn't it, that... Um, in sport, and, and this is a sort of unwritten rule, when things are going against you, everything goes wrong. Yeah. You know, everything gets caught, you get run out, whatever. When you're playing well and confidence is high, the pieces of fortune run for you. It happens all the time in all sports, and I don't, you can't put a finger on why, but it definitely happens. Well, Graham probably didn't have time to question why that summer because he was simply so busy scoring runs. That season, he hit a phenomenal 2,746 first-class runs, including 1,200s, at an average of 101.7. Anyway, back to the match. England declare on 653 for four, with India scoring 454 in reply just to avoid the follow-on. That was after Kapil Dev smashed four sixes in a row off the spinner Eddie Hemmings. 
beautifully placed and it wouldn't matter where the man was out there because it's gone way, way, way over the top. Anyway, it goes again for another six. And that is the best of all. And that's it. I suppose it's only logical. If you need 24 to save the follow-on, why wouldn't you get it in four hits? Only couple that could have done that. Only couple there. Yeah, I mean, I had a bit of a stone in my shoe because what what happened was that um, um, Dev did hit Eddie for four consecutive sixes. Eddie kept tossing the ball up, trying to buy the wicket. Hawani, the number 11. I caught Kapildev at slip off of, of, off of Gus Fraser with my hand sort of on the ground. And, of course, there's no replays or anything like that, although replays I don't think would have, would have helped much. It's a straight catch, hands on the ground, went straight in. Dickie Bird was the umpire at square leg. Nigel Plews was the umpire, standing umpire. And Nigel walked across to Dickie and said, uh, did that carry? And Dickie, I think, said to him, I can't help you, Nigel. <laughs> So he gave him not out. Right. And Kapil Dev stood there and fine. I said I caught it, but he, you know, he's quite entitled to wait for the umpire's decision. I don't have any problem with that. So, so I was, um, shall we say, ticking a little bit. Yeah. Because that was given not out, and then of course Kapil hit Eddie Edmonds for four consecutive sixes and saved the follow-on. The first ball we bowled at Hawani, he was out. Okay. So when I went into bat, I was. Um, sort of on a mission you know and I, I was I was not a happy man because we didn't get make them follow on as it turned out it turned out you know well because he scored 100 and we got the runs and bowled them out but um, these little things happen in the game well yeah and it also allowed you to get that record aggregate score of 456 mm. uh, runs in a test match which still hasn't been beaten um, the nearest anyone's got to it is actually Mark Taylor who scored 426 for Pakistan um, in Peshawar in 1998 yeah but that that England game against India what is incredible about it is you, you go on to win the match because you set them a total and um, India are bowled out for 224 that 456 at Lords I sort of wanted to, to finish with this fact for the listeners you were 37 years old that's amazing but I didn't feel 37 years old if you see what I mean yeah you know I um I always felt a few years earlier, speaking to my best friend John Embry, that I felt that that I'd done okay in Test cricket, and it's something I I, I dislike now when people you say to people, "How are you playing?" Oh, well, I'm playing all right, and I say, "All right's not good enough. Yeah. You don't want to be all right. You want to be excellent." And I felt in my early thirties. That, that yeah, I was playing okay, but okay was not good enough. I need I needed to improve, and obviously it coincided with the England captaincy, obviously the fitness work and the way I thought about myself. And I, and then over that period, the one big thing I, when people asked me, I spoke to Andy Flower last week, and he asked me the same thing. What was the thing that changed? And it, the the one big thing that changed for me, which changed my game was not those technical things really is the way I thought about myself as I got to that sort of age that I need to be 
my records are okay, but it's not good enough. It needs to be better. I need to be averaging over 40, and you know, I, I, I need to convert more hundreds. That, that's why I'm not, you know, not the player I want to be. But it's the way I thought about myself. I changed the way I thought about myself to be more, much more positive. Because you were so, quite an insecure person. Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, a, not a very extrovert person, yeah. you know. But I inwardly, I gained a lot of inner strength, not outward the way you show it, but inner strength about how I thought about myself. So when I went out against the opposition, I researched it a bit more. I, I worked out how they bowled and all those sort of things. But also, I convinced myself that I was going to be successful. So you'd call it self-belief. I upgraded self-belief. I convinced myself that I'm good enough against these guys. I've got runs against these. I've got the game. You know, all those things you need to put in your head. And, 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 and when people say now, we discussed it a lot when I was coaching England, you know, a lot of people have negative thoughts. Alistair Cook, who's here today, we all have negative thoughts about are you going to do well? And mm. But what you've got to do is control those thoughts, okay? They're mm. not unnatural thoughts a kind of self-doubt yeah, yeah. They're, they're natural that's a human emotion yeah everyone has this you know everyone here on this ground the players everyone has doubts you know i'm not sure about this is this going to happen for me or not going to happen but but the trick is to control those thoughts so in my case all the negative thoughts about mm, is it going to go well is it not going to go well i managed to put to the back of my mind do you think that was an age thing as you got older Possibly. It evolved. I said, people evolve themselves. You became almost more relaxed in your own skin. A little bit, yeah. But you, I had to make changes, and I and and that's the one big change that gave me that four or five years, or three four years of of successful cricket, really successful cricket. Yeah, you know, converting, getting big scores, helping win matches. I believed so much more. And it made a huge difference. Well, Graham, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure sort of going down memory lane, discussing the 4-5-6 against India, also that century against uh, the West Indies at Lords. Um, I feel like we could uh, keep going. There's so, much, so many stories and memories to discuss, but uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And also very nice to be here at Chelmsford in, uh, in your backyard, so to speak. Absolutely. It's always good to be at uh, home ground and always exceptional to talk about the, the greatest ground in, in cricket history which is Lords. nothing can surpass walking through those gates from the pavilion onto the middle with a willow in your hand Graham thanks for your time today thank you You've been listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast with me, Will Rowe. The stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them. Well, that was Graham Gooch. It was really good fun to record that episode with Graham, especially in his home comforts of Essex County Cricket Club. Before we started recording, I just asked him the usual questions, how he was, how he was doing, and he said, you know, fine, just looking forward to chatting cricket. And I think that really sort of came through in the interview that he just loves the game, loves talking about it. Uh, Big thanks to ECB and BBC for providing the commentary clips you heard during that episode. Um, Something so special, especially for me, um, to listen back to those, especially some of the early ones in the the 90s and even the 80s, before I was born, um, listening to the greats like Richie Benno. It just sort of takes you back to those hot summer days in England. Um, The podcast was recorded, edited and produced by myself, Will Rowe. 
If you've enjoyed it, please do subscribe on the usual podcast providers. Also, leave a review and rate the show. It really does help spread the message. Um, you can also get in touch with us on Twitter, at Homer Cricket, or you can email the show. Um, happy to hear anything that you'd like to uh, talk about. Podcast at mcc.org.uk for that. And there's also a dedicated page on the Lord's website with liner notes and the podcast there. Just go to lords.org forward slash podcast for that. Right, next week's podcast is with Kumar Sangakkara. Not really much introduction I need to give you here, but he is truly one of the greats of the game. We talk about his 2014 century at Lords, growing up in Sri Lanka with the backdrop of the civil war there, the World Cup in 1996, what it meant to him as a young man, what it means to Sri Lanka then, what it means to Sri Lanka now, how he got into the game, so many stories from Kumar. And there's much, much more as well. We kind of go off on a few tangents, but it's it's well worth a listen. It's an absolute treat. So hope you can listen to that. And uh, once again, thanks for listening to today's show.